Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon or sign up for a free trial with audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. I'm David Silver of the MindPod Network. I've been reading Sharon and meeting her and listening to her talks for years and years. And I can say this, that no matter how deep or profound or esoteric the subject of what she's talking about, she always makes it accessible and easy to understand based on our everyday life, what we do every day and how we can progress in the business of self-awareness. She's just the clearest and sometimes the funniest. This lecture is called the Brahma Viharas. What are the Brahma Viharas? Well, they are one, loving kindness, two, compassion, three, empathetic joy, and four, equanimity. When you listen to this talk, at the end of it, you'll know more about yourself and about the world. It's always like that with Sharon. Uh, She just maps it out in the most, you know, humane manner. And by that, I mean, you understand what she's talking about. She's talking about life as we live it, not some disembodied thing which is somehow available somewhere to some people who really try the hardest. Sharon has always been the most compassionate of teachers, in the sense that either the people in front of her or the people listening to a podcast or reading one of her books always feel that they're being told the hard truth about what it is we're talking about, but a truth that will set you free. Uh, Loving kindness, metta, is one of her specialties, and she's very special in the way she talks about it. She makes you want to be loving, kind, and that's not out of some you know, airy-fairy, kind of, oh, let's all love each other. No, I've always found that it's because she, first of all, allows us to return when we make a mistake and tells us that that's an important part of meditation. And life in general is just to start again if you think you've failed in something, but not to go downward in a spiral of, I just can't do this. Yes, you can do it, and she proves it because she's so human. Uh, These four uh, Brahma Viharas loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity are definitely made available to you by Sharon's skill in telling you how to get there. You know, this one, this particular talk, ends with a brief meditation, and I would suggest that you stay with it, because when she leads meditations, again, she leads you to a clear space, one that's both honest and in some sense transcendental, in the sense that you're transcending uh, a life that may be full of too much suffering because of lack of self-worth or lack of knowing exactly what to do every morning when you get out of bed. This is why Sharon Salzberg is so valuable to all of us. Here's her talk. I think there's always this element of needing to begin again because just the, the conditioned nature of our awareness is such that it tends to flicker. And, and this little thing even say we're trying to do the breath and our attention wanders and we need to start over is one of the things I've enjoyed the most about meditation practice because I always felt like the really big life lessons happened in these little bitty packages. Think about beginning again without so much regret for time lost or recrimination 
against yourself about having blown it or strayed or whatever, made a mistake. Think about being able to begin again and again and again without a sense of having failed with that incredible spirit of renewal. I'm like, wow, okay, it's a new moment. Here we are. So even though if you said to somebody, well, I went to Hawaii and this is what I did in the morning. I felt a few breaths. My attention wandered. I brought it back. It would be like, all right. <laughs> That's not very exciting, is it? It's actually very exciting because of, of what we're more deeply practicing. And so we take that kind of understanding into lots of forms and lots of methods and say, of course, I want to move over to a, a more explicit cultivation of loving kindness. So the word actually in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text that's usually translated as meditation is bhavana. And bhavana literally means cultivation. So there we had the Buddha in a very agrarian society using that kind of imagery, like cultivating the ground so that wondrous things can emerge desired things can emerge, beautiful things can emerge. So our work is to cultivate the ground. Rather than seeing our work as somehow acquiring and getting and having and preserving, like desperately, okay, I've got till Monday morning when I have to get on the shuttle to really love myself completely or to forgive everybody or something like that, rather than having that kind of energy we more see it as cultivating the ground. That's what we're doing. So bhavana means cultivation. We're creating the conditions out of which, through the force of nature, other things can emerge. And there's another meaning of the word bhavana, or there's another way it's used, which I like a lot, which actually comes from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition more, although they also use cultivation. Um, they have this phrase that they substitute for the word meditation, and the phrase is getting used to it, getting familiar with it, getting used to it. And I think the meaning of that is a sense that pretty well we have had moments of extraordinary connection and clarity and powerful insight, understanding, compassion, but we don't tend to be awfully used to them. It's like we have a moment and we think, what was that? Or we think, I don't think I'll tell anyone about that. Or we think, I gotta get that back, I don't know how to get it back, how do I get it? But we don't tend to abide or dwell or live in our deepest understanding and our most profound experiences. So the practice of meditation is one of getting used to it. And that, I think, also changes the energy, so you don't have such a feeling of desperation, like, I've got nothing, and I'm so deficient and defective, and someday, maybe, I'll have a moment of clarity, of connection, of love. It's not like that. It's almost like we're starting from the assumption that we've, we've had that. But it's all too fleeting. And so our work is to learn to dwell, to abide in something we already know. And that's, that's a real different sense of things. So that's a lot of how I see the meditation process, especially around 
the meditations on loving kindness and compassion and so on. It's like we're getting used to qualities that we actually do know. We know deeply and we know their nature. So usually in the Buddhist tradition, there are four qualities that are talked about together. Together, these four qualities are known as the four Brahma-viharas. Brahma means supreme or celestial or divine. One translation I heard of it that I like a lot is the word best. So Brahma can be seen as best, and vihara means dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities are said to form our best home. So it's very much that same thing. And like any home, we may not be there all the time, certainly, but we know what it feels like when we get back there. It should be the place where we feel most authentic, most ourselves, most at ease. We're home. So these four qualities are said to form our best home. And they are first loving kindness, which is a very deep knowing of connection, that our lives have something to do with one another. And I'll go back and talk about that much more in a second. And the second quality is compassion, which is said to be the, the trembling or the quivering of our hearts in response to seeing pain or suffering. It's like our hearts actually move. The third quality is known as sympathetic joy, which is actually being able to take delight in the happiness of others rather than what is so common for us, a kind of envy or jealousy. We hear about or we witness someone's success or good fortune, and we think, ooh, I'd be happier if you had a little bit less going for you right now. You, know, like, you don't have to lose everything, but if the light could just dim a bit. You know, it's like all these emails. I'm so happy you're in Hawaii. Too bad it's snowing here, you know. It's going to snow for four days. Let me make sure I can shovel your path so that when you... No, they're very happy for me, really. They are extremely happy for me. But I think we know the, the beauty and the quality of this state of sympathetic joy because we know what it's like when we receive it or we don't. Like something really good happens for us and some people are so happy for us. And other people, it's like they may smile, but you really get the sense they would be just fine if it kind of fell apart for us. And it feels so terrible, doesn't it? It feels like so debilitating, so awful, that they're, they're not happy for us. So that's, that's the quality. Instead of feeling so jealous or envious, it's actually taking delight in someone else's happiness. And then the fourth quality, the fourth Brahmavihara, is the state of equanimity, which is a state not of indifference or callousness, but of real balance of mind. I talk about it as the kind of balance that's born from wisdom. So it's like perspective. It's really understanding. It's like space. That nothing is permanent that we're not in control of this universe, that things happen. We go up and we go down. That depending on how we relate to those ups and downs, 
so goes our life. So it's not about not caring. It's a very hard thing to describe, actually. It doesn't mean we don't care. It doesn't mean that we're cut off or, or pulled away, but we care with wisdom, which is like a really big space. Sometimes I use this image um, also from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that they use in a totally different context. They say, imagine relating to your, the thoughts and feelings that come up in your mind as though you were quite an elderly person sitting in a playground watching children play. And I love that sense because it implies so much to me, like so much tenderness and so much presence, so much care, but also wisdom. It's like you've lived a life. You've been through some stuff. You've seen a lot. So there's all that perspective. And then maybe, you know, you're in the playground and you see this kid who's like completely freaked out because they broke their shovel. You don't go up to them and say, hey, kid, it's just a shovel. You know, like, wait till you have a mortgage. Wait till you have arthritis. It's like, it's not like that. But you also know this is just a shovel. Shovels break. This is in the nature of things. So there's a quality of peace, actually, and composure in that. That doesn't mean we pull away. You know, we don't get like mean and cold and say, hey, kid, it's just a shovel. But even with all that tenderness and that care and that sympathy, there's that knowing, which really frees us. It really releases us in a different way. And I think of myself as just a human being. Like when I go to someone for help, were I to go to someone for help, I would want both those things. I would want like tremendous tenderness and love and compassion, and I'd also want that spaciousness. I mean, if I told someone my really difficult story and they fell on the ground sobbing, I think, uh-oh, <laughs> like, there's no way out of here. <laughs> you know? This is really bad. I even scared them. But I don't want them to say, hey, it's just a shovel either, you know. So I think we want both. We want that sense of being connected and heard and cared for. And we want some sense of spaciousness, of openness, of not being caught in the immediate situation. That's perspective. It's wisdom. So these are the four qualities that are talked about together, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And um, they can be practiced as very distinct practices, or more generally, we take one as a vehicle and we bring in the others. Now, we would say that in a practice, say, of loving kindness, which we're going to do today, there's always equanimity, because if there's not equanimity, loving kindness becomes something else. So as I use the word loving kindness, it really does mean that sense of connection. It's like a very deep acknowledgement of connection. It doesn't mean we like everybody. It doesn't mean we approve of everybody. It doesn't mean we give in to everybody. But we do have this sense. It's just like a knowing. Okay, however alone I might feel, the truth is I'm part of a bigger fabric of life. However apart someone else may seem, the truth is our lives have something to do with one another. 
So one example, one exercise I always try to do is just to have everybody, which you can all do right now, just think for a few moments of all the different people who are somehow involved in your being here right now. That's right. Each of us came here as a consequence of lots of conditions, connections, relationships, interactions. How many people gave you a book or read you a poem or told you about chanting or yoga or their meditation practice? How many people? Every single one of us is here as a, a part of like a confluence of conditions. So many interactions. As I might have said, I can't remember if I said it here. I first went to India 40 years ago um, as a college student at the State University of New York at Buffalo. I got it was supposed to be a year of independent study credit to go to India and study Buddhist meditation. Turned out to be a little longer, but you know, so sometimes I do this reflection and I go way back there. I think of the Board of Regents of the State University of New York who gave me a scholarship so I could go to college, so I could go to India. They're part of why I'm sitting here right now. And how many times are we moved forward by having been really, really hurt by somebody? Not just those people we find a little bit annoying or obnoxious, but those times when someone's actions have really propelled us to an edge so that we said, I've got to see things differently. I've got to break free of this or I'll never be truly happy. Because in truth, when I do this reflection, I realize they're part of why I'm sitting here right now too. And how many beings have something to do with the food that we just ate? Even if it wasn't a distinct animal product. Creatures that live in the soil and who planted that seed and who harvested that crop and produced the food and all of that. The Vietnamese Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh has this exercise where he'll do something like hold up a string bean and he'll say, now see the world, because you can. So that's really my deepest sense of loving kindness, is just the kind of knowing that our lives all have something to do with one another, that it's not really the same at all as having being sentimental or um, certainly nothing to do with being false or affected about things. But because of that knowing, we just relate differently. Instead of thinking, oh, you're like nothing, you don't count. Why should I care about you? You're over the line into the other category. We realize that those are just kind of constructs, that sense of self and other and us and them. It's something we make up that isn't so very true when we look 
So that's why I find loving kindness a very powerful thing because it's so much based on how things actually are. That's what gives it its, its strength, its power. Unlike the way so many people think of it as being kind of saccharine or um, too sweet, too placid, makes you weak, makes you kind of foolish. Really, it's so powerful. It's so strong. It really is like a force in and of itself. And I think about the active expression of that loving kindness, which is kindness. And how that too can be demeaned in so many ways is so often, I think we, we tend to view kindness as a kind of secondary virtue. It's like if you can't be brilliant and you can't be courageous and you can't be wonderful, it's like, okay, be kind, you know? It's like, it's a little something. <laughs> It's not extraordinary in any way, but it's nice, you know, it's better than not being kind. And, but actually when we look at it, when we, when we truly look at that, that sense of kindness, it's amazing in its power and its effect both on ourselves and, and on others. So I find this a very powerful and interesting exploration because as we do a practice like loving kindness, it's not like we're trying to talk ourselves into a state that we're actually not feeling. It's not pretentious or phony in that way, but we're really looking deeply at a lot of assumptions about happiness, about aloneness, about strength. Like, does vengefulness really make us strong? About competition. One of the great challenges, for example, to the state of sympathetic joy is said to be a feeling, it's actually a little hard to describe. It's sort of a feeling like that success or that accolade or that prize was heading right at me. And it was just about to land on me when you like put up your hand and grabbed it. And so it landed on you. But if you hadn't done that, it was definitely arriving at my door. The story I often tell about that, I teach a, um, an intensive seven-day retreat in loving kindness uh, in snowy Massachusetts every winter. You're all invited. And uh, one year I was teaching that retreat and I gave a talk on sympathetic joy. And, I use this example for, for jealousy or envy. I said, it's like you're in New York City and it's Sunday morning. So you go out and you get the New York Times and you open it up to the book review section. And then you look at the bestseller list and you see that your friend's book has gotten on the New York Times bestseller list. And you think, oh, that's not that good. My book was better. And it's almost like the New York Times was heading to me. And somehow you distracted them. You managed to get them to pay attention to your book when they, their intention was to go right to me. And it's like you stole that from me. So I just used that example, right, very casually and spontaneously. And by the strangest of coincidences, I had three different friends sitting that retreat, each of whom had had a book on the New York Times bestseller list. 
And one by one after that talk, they each came up and said, is that how you felt when you saw the book? And I said, no, of course not. Which I hadn't, actually. I'm pretty happy. But uh, isn't that the weirdest feeling? It's like, you took something away from me. Whereas in truth, that, that has no basis in reality. And so those are the kinds of assumptions we make all of the time that keep us feeling so frightened, so alone, so unhappy, and we challenge them in doing this practice. That's why it's quite profound, is because we look at many, many notions and concepts, not necessarily through purposeful analysis, but just through our experience, because we see all of this as we do the practice. So most commonly, loving-kindness is the vehicle we use for compassion, for sympathetic joy, and certainly for equanimity. And the way it's done is also interesting. Uh, the practice of loving-kindness, in contrast to what we did yesterday with gathering all of our attention around the feeling of the breath, we gather all of our attention around the silent repetition of certain phrases. So that becomes the centering point. And the phrases are very simple. Something like, may I be happy, may you be happy. Uh, may I be peaceful, may you be peaceful. And we'll go into that a little more in just a few minutes. Now the phrases are the conduit for our attention. So it's a little bit like stretching. If we're used to paying attention and only noticing what's wrong with ourselves, or with someone else, we use the phrases to expand some beyond that, to also include that sense of wishing well, of blessing. So we're not so fixated on a pretty narrow band. And we use the phrases to pay attention to others, sometimes those whom we normally do look through or discard or discount. And they just don't register for us. It's not even that we don't like them or we have a problem with these people or creatures or whatever it is, but they're, they're kind of like the other through indifference. So very often it's people who serve some kind of function in our lives. You know, checkout person in a supermarket or dry cleaner or stranger that we meet in some way who is what we would call like a neutral person for us. We don't feel greatly indebted to them. We don't feel very challenged by them. They're just kind of neutral for us. How many beings do we encounter like that that we just sort of objectify so that it's almost like they might as well be a piece of furniture for us rather than a living, breathing being? So we stretch we actually pay attention to them rather than ignore them. That's what we do through the phrases. Or maybe we're stuck in a certain preconception about somebody, and it may not be fanciful. Maybe we've had a certain experience of them. And we don't want to deny the pain or the difficulty of that experience, but we also may be missing more of a totality of who this person is. And we'll talk a lot more about that 
tomorrow. But there's just a way in which we use these phrases to go beyond what might be our normal rut. And that's why I often think of this practice and describe it as a kind of play. It's kind of a miserable practice if you think you've got to, you know, be awash in a certain feeling by this afternoon. Because then there's all this quantification and um, attachment, like, where's the love? I don't know. I had two minutes of it yesterday. I should have five minutes of it today, or maybe 15. I'm in Hawaii, after all, you know. That, those conditions should help me. I should have this. I should have that. Where is it? I don't see it. Everyone else has it. I don't have it. It's not like that. Something even deeper, often, than the level of emotion is going on as we stretch, as we leave our rut, our habitual way of paying attention, and we take a few risks, and we play. So my favorite thing to say about loving-kindness practice is what happens. Like, what happens when I am in the supermarket and I'm seeing that checkout person more as an extension of the cash register than anything? Like, what happens when I stop and I look and I think, may you be happy? What happens when I'm just fixated on something I did wrong or something I said that I really don't like, or the time I didn't say anything because I was too timid and I really needed to. And what happens when I admit that, I acknowledge that, but I don't collapse. Like, this is who I am and who I will always be. And I can open through, may I be happy? May I be peaceful? What happens when I see this world and it's not such a sense of, like, the other? But I more have a sense of we rather than self and other. Like, what happens? We do that through the phrases, too. So it's like play. That's what we're going to do through this practice. It's like a grand experiment in seeing what happens. And also not seeing what happens every instant. You know, but over time, we'll see if one pursues this kind of orientation, what happens when you are in the supermarket, when you do drop something, when you do say the wrong thing, when you meet a stranger, all those, all those avenues, all those aspects of life. So we're going to sit for a few minutes together. Then we'll have time for some discussion. So this particular practice is done in sitting as well through the silent repetition of certain phrases. And you can think of it as a kind of offering, an offering first of all to ourselves and then a whole variety of different beings, people, creatures, and ending with the extension of loving-kindness to all of life, really to the boundlessness of life, to all beings everywhere. I always found it kind of interesting and even sort of peculiar that the practice is said to begin with making this offering for ourselves. I thought, where's that at? Surely something like this should be about self-denial and only caring about others, something like that. But it's interesting, the 
tradition is very clear that we begin with making this offering to ourselves, that that's the foundation. Because in truth, without some amount of balance in that way, we end up feeling we have nothing to give. We're just depleted. And you can think of this as like a practice of generosity, even if it doesn't manifest materially. It's like generosity of the spirit. So if we feel exhausted and overcome and it's way too much or what we have to give is so negligible, it's so nothing, we're not going to, in truth, be able to extend out to others. And so we begin with ourselves. The phrases are translations from Pali or Sanskrit and being words that are kind of awkward. So I usually say to people, see if you can find good enough phrases. And the meaning that they have for us just changes over time. It deepens, it shifts. But you don't want to be using phrases that you're struggling with right from the beginning. So things that are good enough. The one traditional translation, beginning with ourselves, would be something like, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. It's like a blessing. And this last, may I live with ease, or may you live with ease, means in the things of day-to-day -day life, like livelihood or family, may it not be such a struggle. May I live with ease. May I be safe. Be happy, be healthy, live with ease. And again, the meaning of all of this, happiness, health, it just constantly deepens, it changes. But you need to feel basically okay so that you can keep repeating those phrases. We want to find phrases that are general enough so that we can use them for ourselves and then for others. You don't want to be imprisoned inside those phrases, but at the same time, you don't want to be constantly thinking like, well, may you be happy. Well, no, maybe not you. You get awfully lazy when you get happy. May you be what? What? Like content? No, you'd really go to sleep if you were content. May you be a little bit happy? You know, like, that doesn't work. Because here, too, the power of the practice comes in gathering all of our attention being so wholeheartedly present behind one phrase at a time. So spend a few moments now. Just see if you can find three or four phrases that are big enough, general enough, and okay enough so that you can keep repeating them. Phrases like, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. Or sometimes people say, may I be filled with loving kindness, or may I be peaceful. And then sitting comfortably, you can again close your eyes or not. Let those phrases arise one by one and repeat them with enough space and enough silence so that it's a rhythm that's pleasing to you. This is like the song of your heart. One of my friends said he thought he'd get extra credit for saying more phrases. So you should say them really fast to get a lot in. You don't need to do that.
You find that rhythm where you can repeat the phrases and gather all of your attention behind one phrase at a time. And here too, the skill set is exactly the same. You will find your mind wandering all over the place. You realize that, just gently let go and come back. And see if you can imagine yourself sitting in the center of a circle. The circle being made up of the most loving beings you've met in this life, or maybe you've never met them, but they've existed historically or even mythically. It's like a circle of beings, people, creatures, that embody the force of loving kindness for you. And there you are in the center. See what it's like to experience yourself as the recipient of their loving care as you keep gently repeating the phrases for yourself. Now all kinds of different feelings may come up. You may feel grateful and awed and happy. You may feel embarrassed and shy and think, well, I'd rather they just sent loving kindness to one another and ignored me. Anything may come up, but just let it wash through you. The steadying point for our attention is those phrases. And then we'll just close with the extension of loving kindness to all beings everywhere. All people, all creatures, all those in existence, near and far, known and unknown. May all beings be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.